The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... Fasten your seatbelts because we're about to take off to learn about flying the accessible skies. Welcome to ACB Reports for April 2017. Blaine Worky is the Assistant General Counsel for Aviation Enforcement and Proceedings in the Office of the General Counsel of the U.S. Department of Transportation. During the recent legislative seminar of the American Council of the Blind, she discussed updates to rules of the Air Carrier Access Act. Her presentation has been edited to fit the time constraints of this program. My remarks today will be focused on one mode of transportation, and that is air travel. Now, many of you may know that about five months ago, we celebrated the 30th anniversary of the Air Carrier Access Act. The Air Carrier Access Act is a law that prohibits airlines from discriminating against air travelers with disabilities. The law is a groundbreaking achievement and a powerful tool for equality, but it's really short. It's about 150 words and it doesn't really have a lot of specifics. So Congress essentially entrusted the Department of Transportation to bringing it to life. We've done this through a system of regulations that are designed to improve access to transportation facilities and services for people with disabilities. Among many other things, our regulation requires carriers to provide seating accommodations to passengers with disabilities, and mandates boarding and deplaning assistance for travelers with disabilities if requested. Also, airlines today are required to make airport kiosks and websites accessible. The requirement for all the web pages on an airline's website to be accessible became effective December 12 of 2016. All of the airline's websites must meet standards for accessibility contained in the widely accepted website content accessibility guidelines. The rule also requires ticket agents to disclose and offer way-based discount fares to customers who are unable to use the site due to their disability. The mobile sites are not included. When the rule came out, um, we had a lot of discussion and comments also from advocates, all stakeholders on that issue. And one of the problems or concerns we had with mobile sites is on the one hand, people just use them all the time, so you would want them to be accessible. The problem that we had was for primary websites, there was an internationally recognized standard out there, which is the WCAG standard that I mentioned. For mobile sites, at the time that we were drafting the regulation, there were different sorts of things, and I forget, it's, I think it's called W3, W3C, exactly, for mobile sites. And that was not as recognized of a standard, and it hadn't been fully as developed. So at that stage, we were not comfortable imposing that standard on websites. We have informally still encouraged airlines to have their mobile sites accessible because it is important, and a lot of us, including me, 
you know, use your phone and iPad and everything else a lot. But in terms of the regulations, they are not currently required to be accessible. Now, with regard to airport kiosks, any airport kiosk that is installed at a U.S. airport after April 12, 2016, must be accessible to passengers with disabilities until at least 25% of those kiosks are accessible. Even though our rule requires 25% kiosk accessibility, there are some airlines that are actually going to 100% kiosk accessibility. Now, the standards for accessible kiosks are based on those set by the U.S. Department of Transportation for ATM and fare machines in its 2010 Americans with Disabilities Act rule, as well as Section 508 standards for self-contained products. These are things like copiers. Another rule that recently became effective, and this became effective about six months ago, August 4th of 2016, is the requirement for airports with 10,000 or more annual emplanements to establish service animal relief areas. Airlines have been required for many years to establish service animal relief areas. The new law also applies the requirements to airports and expands it in certain ways. For example, this rule specifies that airports must have at least one relief area per terminal. Before, there was no requirement about how many there could be. So there could be one or two for the entire airport. This specifies that there has to be at least one per terminal. It also requires airports to consult with one or more service animal training organizations regarding the design, the dimensions, the materials, and maintenance of service animal relief areas. And perhaps most importantly, with uh, very limited exceptions, service animal relief areas must be located in the sterile area of each airport terminal to ensure that individuals with service animals are able to access service animal relief areas when traveling, particularly during layovers. And we worked very closely with the TSA and others to ensure that that was possible. As you can see, over the years, we have made great strides in improving air travel for persons with disabilities, but more work remains to be done. This past year, that work has focused on addressing the inaccessibility of in-flight entertainment systems, the inaccessibility of laboratories on single-aisle aircraft, and on the use of service animals. An access advisory committee was established to negotiate a proposed rule addressing these three issues. The committee included a DOT, representative of airlines, persons with disabilities, flight attendants, aircraft manufacturers, motion picture uh, studios, and any number of other interested parties. And as you know, um, Tony was a very valuable member of this committee as well, and he did an excellent job of representing air travelers with disabilities, and, but particularly individuals with um, vision impairments. The great news is that after seven very long months of negotiations, the Access Committee was able to reach consensus on the accessibility of laboratories and in-flight entertainment. These are issues that had been unresolved for literally decades. This agreement is an important step towards ensuring that travelers with disabilities have equal access to air transportation. 
the agreement reached by the Access Advisory Committee has the potential to greatly improve the flying experience of individuals with disabilities. Today, passengers who use wheelchairs cannot access a laboratory on a single-aisle aircraft and often must avoid flying or dehydrate themselves to avoid having to relieve themselves during flight. Under the agreement, there would be short-term and long-term measures taken to address these challenges, eventually resulting in accessible laboratories in the future for individuals who use wheelchairs. Airlines today generally do not provide in-flight entertainment with captioning or audio descriptions. Under the agreement that was reached, movies and shows that have been produced more than nine months after the effective date of a final rule and displayed on aircraft would have to be captioned to provide access to deaf and hard of hearing passengers. In addition, audio described entertainment would be available to enable people who are blind to listen to the visual narration of movies and shows. Airlines would be permitted to display content that is not closed captioned or audio described only if non-captioned or described versions are not available from the airline's content provider. So if a content provider has an audio described version or a captioned version, then that's the one that needs to be shown. The Access Advisory Committee established deadlines for airlines to ensure that any new seatback and flight entertainment system installed on new or existing aircraft are accessible. On aircraft that have inaccessible seatback IFE systems, airlines agreed three years after the effective date of a final rule to provide comparable entertainment through other means, such as through an airline or passenger supplied personal electronic device. An important part of this agreement is that airlines with aircraft that provide a user interface to connect to the internet Think, for example, about a user interface for internet service providers such as GoGo. So whenever an aircraft undergoes a Wi-Fi system software upgrade in the normal course of business, the airline would install any software upgrade needed to ensure that the user interface to connect to the internet is accessible. So what that means is today when you travel and you're on an airline where other passengers are able to use the internet. And while internet may be available, you may not be able to use it because the interface is not accessible. So this is really targeting making sure that the interface is accessible so you would also be able to use the internet on airlines as well. Airlines must start this process 120 days after the effective date of a final rule and must ensure that user interfaces to connect to the internet on all aircraft and an airline's fleet are accessible no later than two years after the effective date of a final rule. The committee also agreed that two independent task forces will work to develop and submit to DOT recommendations on accessible user interface. This is now on seatback displays as opposed to your own device and accessible in-cabin announcements. And work has already started, and Tony, again, has been very active in this area and is assisting. Now, the committee was not able to reach agreement on service animals, the other issue that it had been charged with negotiating. 
DOT had charged the advisory committee with determining the appropriate definition of a service animal and establishing safeguards to reduce the likelihood that passengers wishing to travel with their pets will be able to falsely claim that their pets are service animals. The committee also looked into whether there should be species limitations. For example, should we just have dogs? Should we have cats and dogs? Should we have rabbits? Whether emotional support animals are service animals at all? Whether to eliminate the requirement for documentation for individuals who use psychiatric service dogs or emotional support animals? Again, the Access Committee was not able to reach agreement, but the committee has furnished information to the department that would be helpful in the future. We continue to work hard on these issues and will be briefing the new DOT leadership on the committee's findings. So for all of these things that I've been talking about with respect to the Access Committee to actually come to fruition, we need to issue rules. But there is agreement with all the stakeholders in terms of what should the rules state. Now it is also worth mentioning that the department is also looking into how best to address the problem that occurs when a passenger with a disability traveling with a service animal needs a bulkhead seat or a similar seat that has more adjacent floor space, but such a seat is not available in economy and is only available in economy plus. For a number of years now, our office has advised airlines and individuals with disabilities that an economy plus section is a different class of service as it is sold and promoted as a different higher class of service. This is an area that we are again re-examining and looking into the feasibility of addressing it through rulemaking uh, because we would not be able to change something like this unless we go through rulemaking. Does the rulemaking deal with the inside security relief areas for service animals? It does. What the rule essentially says is that the expectation is that the service animal relief area will be in the sterile area with limited exceptions. And the limited exceptions are really talking about two exceptions. One exception is if a TSA essentially for that particular airport has deemed that uh, the airline of the airport cannot have a service animal relief area in the sterile area, then that's one of the exceptions. The second exception is that, as I mentioned earlier, airports are required to consult with service animal organizations with regard to the design and materials and so forth for the service animal relief area. So in consulting with the service animal organizations and the airlines, there is consensus agreement that for this particular terminal, the location that would be most helpful is actually not in the sterile area, then they would be permitted to have the service animal relief area in the non-sterile area. But generally, the expectation is that it will be in the sterile area, so people who have service animals don't have to go out of a secure area, go back in line to be able to come back. Are there things in those rules that kick in when there are terminal redesigns? There isn't anything specific in the rule that talks about because of redesign, but what it does do is actually have a requirement of the one service animal relief area per terminal. 
So as I mentioned, airlines have been required for some time to have service animal relief areas, but we didn't put a minimum number requirement. So to the extent that they were not either in the sterile area or there was not at least one, they would have to remedy that. Has the DOT ever considered simply adopting the rules and the regulations that run them that were adopted by the Department of Justice regarding service animal definition and access? And if not, why not? Um, it's absolutely been considered, and actually there was um, one of the things that I should have mentioned early on is that we worked with a number of the federal agencies on all these topics, but I'll, I'll give you examples for service animal. We worked very closely with the Department of Justice. Department of Justice gave an update not only to us, but to the entire advisory committee about their rules, and essentially the DOJ service animal rules is that they don't recognize emotional support animals, they do recognize psychiatric service animals. Um, they do have species limitations. Their species limitations are essentially dogs and, in certain cases, uh, miniature horses and monkey. But there has not been consistency with what is a service animal. We also had representations from HUD on what is a service animal in the housing context. We had presentations from various modal administrations within DOT. So there was not agreement, particularly within the advocacy organizations, on whether the definition that DOJ uses should be adopted by uh, DOT. There were those who don't like the fact that emotional support animals were not recognized by DOT. There were some who don't like that DOJ doesn't recognize cats and rabbits. There were some who wanted documentation requirement and DOJ doesn't have documentation requirement. So we considered it and we had lengthy discussions on it, but there was not agreement reached. One of the problems that we all have is personnel that we interact with claiming there are rules that simply don't exist. How does your organization deal with those kinds of activities? So if you or someone you know should face that situation, my first advice is to ask the airline to speak to a disability expert or a complaint resolution official. They all mean one and the same. And every airline is required under DOT rules to have a CRO available at all times that they are operating. That CRO may not necessarily be there in person, but it has to be either in person or by phone. So if you have problems where you, somebody's giving you, you believe, bad information, ask to speak to that expert because they're required to provide that to you and that expert is supposed to have gone through very specialized disability training. Now to answer your question more directly about what DOT would do about it, one of the things we did when we issued the rule, because in the past we had problems with airlines not providing the expert if a person didn't use the keyword CRO, was we revised the rule to say they don't have to use the keyword CRO. If somebody just says they need a disability expert, that's enough to have the rule go into effect. But if you say CRO, they're trained, so they'll know automatically. I just want to quickly answer your second question about what does DOT do. For us to take any action, we need complaints that are filed. 
The complaints can either be filed with us or they can be filed with the airlines because we do inspections of airlines as well. But if we get a complaint like this, we investigate each and every complaint that we receive um, and take action as appropriate, which once we finish this Q&A, I'll talk a little bit more about. Hi, Blaine. I'm Penny Reeder. I'm uh, president of Guide Dog Users. Um, we participated in the RegNeg process, and we were very disappointed when things fell apart. We achieved good consensus, we felt, with the department and with the whole disability community, and it's a shame that things didn't work out so that we could achieve consensus with the airlines as well. When the process fell apart, we understood that there would be an NPRM coming. Can I ask you to look into your crystal ball and see if we can expect some kind of an NPRM? And I have one more question, and that is, when you consult with organizations to determine how to create uh, an accessible relief area for service animals, how do you choose those organizations? Can we get on your list? Because we have a lot to say about that as well. The FAA extension um, that was signed by then-President Obama on July 15 essentially um, requires DOT to issue a notice of proposed rulemaking on a number of issues, including service animals. So I do think at some point we will have a notice of proposed rulemaking to address that issue. Now, because there was not consensus and also because we do have a new leadership that you know, they need the time for us to brief them and provide them information about the committee's findings and specifically where there may have been a breakdown in negotiations, I have no way of knowing you know, what that NPRM would say. Or in terms of the schedule for the NPRM can't be determined until we have had an opportunity to brief the new leadership. But it is something that is required by legislation. Your second question, the consultation process is not handled by the Department of Transportation. Um, the airports are handling the consultation. So we do provide them latitude in terms of what service animal organization they select. So to the extent, for example, if you live close to an airport and are interested, I would suggest you contact that airport and let them know of your interest so that they have you among the individuals who have the expertise and are interested in participating. Are there any regulations or guidelines for meet and assist, especially on arrival flights? The regulation requires prompt assistance, both at arrival and departure and connecting. And we have language that gives additional guidance on arrival, for example, in the rulemaking. And what we say is that the airline is supposed to have a person waiting at the aircraft so they can provide that assistance to you. So an airline can say the other individuals on the aircraft will disembark before providing guide assistance or wheelchair assistance with somebody who has a mobility impairment. But once the last individual has disembarked the aircraft, they are supposed to be there waiting and coming and helping the individual off of the aircraft or if you're there waiting for you so that they can provide that assistance to you. If that is not happening, then it's something that we should know. So that's something you should contact the airline and the department on. Now, there are a couple of things that I will say that will make that process simpler. As you know, passengers are not required to provide advance notice. But when you do provide advance notice that you would need guiding assistance or wheelchair assistance for somebody who uses a wheelchair, 
it makes it easier to plan because if there are a lot of individuals who don't provide advance notice, then it's possible that there could be delays. Now, that doesn't mean a 40-minute delay is never acceptable. But we do look at the circumstances and look in determining whether the service was prompt or not. And we do the analysis differently based on whether the individual has actually requested advance notice so the airline should have been planned anew as opposed to they had all of these ad hoc requests, which they're still required to assist, uh, but they had ad hoc requests and the airport maybe is, is rather large, so the time it takes them to get somebody up there may take more than just having somebody waiting. With regard to enforcement, generally speaking, my office pursues enforcement action on the basis of a number of complaints on which we may infer a pattern and practice of discrimination. For example, um, uh, about a year ago, in January of 2016, we reached a, a really big settlement with a large U.S. airline where we assessed the airline a $2 million fine for failing to provide prompt and adequate assistance to passengers with disabilities getting on and off aircraft and then moving through the airport terminals, as well as failing to return wheelchairs and other mobility assistive devices. And also in 2016, we've issued three orders against foreign airlines for failing to provide dispositive responses to written complaints. And I'll tell you what I mean by dispositive response. When you send a complaint to an airline saying I did not receive a disability-related accommodation, the airline is required under DOT rules to admit or deny that a violation occurred. So they have to tell you whether they violated the rule or not. And if they fail to tell you that, and if they fail to inform passengers of their right to pursue enforcement action with the department, those are violations. And we issued orders against three different airlines for failing to provide that kind of information to passengers. And the fines ranged from $150,000 to $200,000. In addition to these pattern or practice cases, we also pursue enforcement action as our resources permit where one or a few complaints describe particularly egregious conduct. For instance, just a month ago, we issued an order against a U.S. airline for a series of errors in the handling of seating accommodations for a military veteran who attempted to travel on a flight with a service animal. We found three different errors that were made throughout, but they essentially reflected lapses in training and led to significant travel complications and frustration for the passenger. So the passenger was eventually told they could travel with a service animal in the bulkhead seat, but for him to be told that information, he had to talk to several different people, argue with several different people about the fact that it actually is a service animal, and by the end he was so frustrated he really didn't want to fly, um, and he ended up driving. So the service animal was not denied transportation since they allowed it before the flight departed, but we still view that as being unacceptable and that it's essentially training problems, and we have directed the airline to provide supplemental training to its reservation agents who coded it incorrectly, to the gate agents who didn't know about the proper handling of service animal requests. That was Blaine Workey, Assistant General Counsel for Aviation Enforcement and Proceedings 
in the U.S. Department of Transportation. She was recorded during the legislative seminar of the American Council of the Blind in February of this year. The U.S. Department of Transportation operates a toll-free disability hotline weekdays from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Use this line to report any problems you experience during the process of flying. The toll-free number is 1-800-778-4838. That's 1-800-778-4838. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.